There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. Given the title, it's no surprise to see our audience continually bubbling up as the tech stock bubble bursts, and as we see more and more trouble in the markets. So welcome to our new listeners this week. And we want to get into some of the forces of gravity at work here. And we're going to ask Will to deep dive as he comes out of his bat cave and explains the work he's just produced on the annual global value of music copyright, which, when rounded up, is worth a cool $40 billion. So... Bear with us. Will will explain it all in a moment. So, Will, you've just come out of your bat cave, seen the cold light of day, or at least the (laughs) blistering rain we have here in London, and you're ready to explain to us this new report you've done on the global value of music copyright. Where can we find this work? Yeah, coming out of my back cave, I have to put my sunglasses on so I can see clearly. But the report is up there on tarsaneconomics.com under the undercurrent section. And it's already been picked up in most of the music press and will be about to hit the Wall Street Journal as well. So tarsaneconomics.com is where you can find a report. So before we get on to the abstruse points within the methodology, which may be a long and diverting path we don't want to go down, Can you just give us the motive behind these big headline figures of $40 billion and give me a tweet length summary of why this matters? What's the underlying story behind all this money? The motivation is that everyone on Wall Street talks about the music industry with reference to one industry report. That is the IFPI, which is the record labels, international trade bodies, global music report, which comes out March, April every year. And if you look at this year's report, it's $25.9 billion. It's a big figure. But all the models for valuing copyright, all the forecasts for where the music industry is going, it all stems from this one report. But that, to me, Richard, is a glass half full. There are singers and there's songwriters. There are labels and there are publishers. And we've got to capture all of copyright, essentially the record labels business, the collecting side's business, that's ASCAP and BMI to our American listeners, PRS to the folks in the UK, and then there's the publishing business. So I don't think having a glass half full serves industry well, so I want to fill that glass up, and that's what this report does right here. But the tweet length summary is, the figures that are out there are incomplete, and you've provided a complete set. 
Is that what you're Correct. trying to tell us? Correct. The okay. holistic view. Now, how holistic is that view? Because clearly, we know the US and UK play an outsized role in the music industry, but there are hu- literally hundreds of markets to track. How do you manage all that? Well, the IFPI and CSAC do a pretty good job at doing that. I mean, the IFPI is covering countries in Africa now. Previously, the international music industry didn't recognize that Africa existed. It does now. It's going to get better at doing that. And then again with CSAC, I think there's 97 collecting societies around the world, and they're reporting the collections from every one of them, from Mozambique to Taiwan and so on. So it is a truly global business, and I think we're getting better at getting global coverage as well. It's something that we've not done a good job of in the past, but now we're getting a better feel of the world as 209 countries at the last count, not just the 50 or 60 that we used to count five or 10 years ago. Now, whenever I see a big record number being thrown out there, it makes me think of our smoke signals section. And I have to ask whether we've hit peak publishing. Is this as good as it gets for the publishing industry? I think there's two ways to cut into that. Firstly, it's a very flippant remark from Eddie Q from Apple, where he said, rightly so in my opinion, there's 8 billion people on this planet and not many of them don't like music. Now, of that 8 billion, how many can pay? Another question, but there's still a lot of runway for growth. There's still huge potential in Africa and the Middle East to establish markets that don't even currently exist, ones as opposed to zeros. That said, you do have to see the recent wobble with Netflix which I think was the biggest one-day fall in stock market history, and ask the question of how many people are there out there who are not, you know, who are without a paid music subscription service. So I think in the Western markets, we may have two or three years to go, but in the emerging markets, the party's just getting started. But one of the things I found looking at some of those emerging markets is when the money comes in, it's coming in pennies and pence and bits and pieces, not dollars or pounds or euros. It's that the ARPUs and what's paid in those markets is a tiny fraction of what gets paid in the West. Does that ever add up to really matter in that giant $40 billion number you've talked about, which is so heavily dependent on the U.S. market for the majority of that? Yeah, well, there's a running joke in the business, which is that the per stream that you hear about in America, that is the half a cent per stream you get for music, is easily confused with the ARPU from India. And mathematically, that's probably not far off the truth. That's important. But we do need to take stock of some demographics. Let's leave the music market for a second. The growth of the young population in North Africa and the Middle East with smartphones, with credit or debit cards, is exploding beyond anyone's perceptions. It's absolutely huge. Now, if we can bring a horse to water or perhaps bring water to the horse and bring music monetization models to that growing population, then we've got a formula to succeed. And credit to people like Universal. If you look at Universal, they're building offices in Vietnam and building proper bases in these emerging markets. Supply creates demand and the industry is clearly supplying resources to monetize these markets. So it's not going to be quick. It's not going to be overnight, but the demographics are in their favor. Financial inclusions in its favor. I think this is going to work out give it three, four, five years, we'll start to see some serious numbers coming from the cities, parts of the world. I have my doubts, but let's park that for a second. What I'd like to drill into is making sense of some of this growth, splits and share of streaming. How do you go and add up all these different verticals that media can appear? Because 
Our audience might be seeing music crop up in all sorts of places, in video games, there, there's performance rights for in bars, there's advertising. How do you tally up all these other verticals and how does the publishing world think about them and address them and actually get paid by them? I think the first way you cut this 40 billion cake up is to think about money that comes from the consumer, that is paying for subscription or consuming ads or buying CDs or buying vinyl, which is potentially the second biggest line item in the business right now. And then you've got money that comes from business, that is licensing those restaurants, retail places, those concerts, wholesale licensing. I think that's the first fork in the road you've got to get your head around with this business. Then if we look at splits, what I think you see, and we go into this in the report, is what's the balance between how much goes to the songwriter and the publisher vis-a-vis the label and the artist? Now, when it comes to licensing businesses, let's say for simplicity's sake, a hairdresser, that tends to favor the publisher and the songwriter. So a hairdresser might give the record label and the artist £200 and the publisher and the songwriter £400. And there's a lot of hairdressers up and down this country That's not a lot of money, but it does add up to something quite significant. But when you look at the consumer side of the business, well, that favors labels versus the publishers. So if a streaming service was to give the record label a dollar, it would give the publisher 29 cents. So I think your first fork in the road is, are we getting money from the consumer? Are we getting money from business? Then the second fork in the road is, on the consumer side, expect to see the label receive more and the publisher receive less. On the business side, expect the publisher to see more and the label to receive less. That's already quite a lot to take in, but if you can hold those two points in your head, you're really far upfield in terms of making sense of the spaghetti of copyright. Well, my head is spinning with all that. I just know <laughs> that when I go to the hairdresser, she's got Spotify on in the background, and I don't think she pays anything directly, but I'm not going to rumble my hairdresser because she'd be on the hook for extra costs, and the cost of my ever-occasional haircut will go up. Now, Something I know we have agreed to disagree on is inflation and how you calculate it in really in all its forms. And it's clearly hard to parse out, to tease out of rising prices. You say the equivalent figure for 2001 was $28 billion. And now it's 40% up to $40 billion. But Shouldn't we strip out some inflation because, God, I do not even want to think about what I had to pay for a stick of butter or a pint of milk or a coffee in, in, in 2001 and how much more it costs today? Well, interestingly, I think you paid more for a CD in 2001 than you'd pay for Spotify today. CD prices in 2001 were like $15, $16. But my main concern with, and this is not just a music point, but just a general Wall Street analyst point is stripping inflation out of aggregate pots of cash, which is what we're Mm. discussing here, is you miss profitability. You miss supply-side variables. So, you know, the cost of a CD is a unit, and we can strip inflation out of that. The cost of Spotify is a unit, 999. We can strip inflation out of that. And I've done that in the paper that's on my website, Malb Economics. But an aggregate pot of cash... Is that really related to inflation, which is to do with the unit cost of goods, or is that to do with so much more? And Mm. the way I'd wrap this point up is by saying, I remember in 2015 being in Gothenburg in Sweden and learning that Sony Music in Sweden had A, never been smaller in size in terms of turnover, but B, never produced as much profit as it was doing that year. So profitability is a bit that gets lost in inflation. The business might be smaller, but producing more profit. 
But we're not talking about profit here. We're talking about the absolute value of copyright. And if I take the $28 billion figure for 2001, and I assume any sort of multiplier effect, and we know very well the power of compounding, and I would assume 2 or 3% inflation per annum, wouldn't that get me pretty damn close to what the $40 billion figure is today without seeing all these incremental use cases in in hairdressers and video games and ads. You're right. If you actually run the mass, we're a little bit behind the rate of inflation, even with 40% growth. Mm. And Mm -hmm. you as an analyst aren't looking for things that keep pace with inflation. You're looking for things that beat inflation, right? You're not, (laughs) Richard Kramer is not in the Red Queen race in Alice in Wonderland where you have to run as fast as you can just to stand still. Richard Kramer wants to run fast and move forward. Wait a second, you mean all the, all those, all the 50 year (laughs) bonds in Swiss francs and uh, German bonds that had paid negative interest rates, they aren't so good anymore? (laughs) Yeah, so, so it's tricky because... Back when we sold CDs, there was a bunch of cost involved in selling them, but they did produce potentially a bigger pile of cash in real terms than everything that we've achieved to this day. That said, it is growing. It's going to continue growing. There is new markets opening up. There's new formats opening up. So even if we're behind the curve in inflation, A, don't ignore the problems with deflating aggregate pots of cash, missing profitability, missing the supply side effect. But B, the story hasn't finished just yet. So you're right to mm. pour a bit of cold water on it, but that water is still pretty lukewarm to me. I'll tell you what, it'd be fascinating to see, given that I know companies that were in the business of making CDs back 20 years ago, and it cost them a buck or less to make them. And obviously they were sold for 15 or 16 bucks. Whether the industry as a whole, having gone through the shift from physical to digital, is on average more producing more or less profit than it was in those two steady states at either end of the, of the canyon, having crossed yeah. that canyon, gone down into the trough of despair and risen up to the wuthering heights of returning to growth, whether indeed the aggregate profit of the industry is adjusted for inflation above or below what it was 20 years ago. I think we could do two things. One, we could get some of your very bright analysts at Arate Research to do our EBITDA huh. deflator. <laughs> or two, we could just count the number of helicopters and private jets are in existence within record labels today and compare that to how many that were in existence back in 2001. Yeah, that the two the cost of the private jets and the helicopters <laughs> might, might have come down a lot as well. You never know. Okay, last point before we go to the break. Talk me through a little bit this tug of war because... I read your piece and there's lots that just my brain is just not big enough to fully comprehend. On the one hand, you talk about labels getting paid. On the other hand, about publishers. But then we see their labels, which are publishers and publishers, which are also linked to labels. We've got the Sony Music signing the publishing rights from Bruce Springsteen and UMG and Warner talking about their publishing businesses. Is this sort of a three-card Monty where they hide the profits between these two groups? Or are they both individually trying to grab as much as they can and some just are more successful than others at various stages of the industry? I sense your frustration. I remember when I first moved into this business in 2006, I was like, how can you have a label and a publisher, but the artist goes with one label, let's say Universal, but then signs with a different publisher, let's say Warner's? And I was told that it's the same thing as you never have a mortgage with your bank account. That's literally how it was explained to me, which is you want to to split the baby, right? You want to have two parties serving you, not just one. So 
I wouldn't be anywhere near as cynical. In fact, it actually makes a lot of sense. The copyrights are different. A songwriter copyright is fundamentally different in its breadth and its depth and its legal application than an artist's copyright. The way that you invest in these copyrights is different. The way that you monetize, the way that you'd shop a sync right to a TV commercial is different from the publisher than it would be for the record label. And that's why it's different horses for different courses. You do end up with a lot of alphabet soup, God knows how many acronyms and terminologies, but that is why you have a publishing business which is worth X, and a label business that's worth Y, yet they can still report to the same CFO. If I give you one mm. quick example before we wrap up at the break, think about this. Let's say Richard Kramer is the songwriter of a Beach Boys song and the performer of a Beach Boys song, and I'm a commercial and I want to use that Beach Boys song, I wish they could all be California girls, in a commercial. I could go to Richard Kramer, the publisher, and say, how much will you charge for the underlying work? Maybe you say it's going to be $50,000, just as a round number. Sounds good to me. Then I could go to a covers band and say, how much would you charge me for doing a recording of I Wish They Could All Be California Girls? And they might say, oh, we'll knock you out a version for 10000 Right, so now I've got a covers band willing to give me £10,000 for a recording of the song. I then come back to Richard Kramer, who performed the song, and say, I'm going to use a covers band for 10000 to use your underlying work. How much would you charge to see something as opposed to nothing? The correct answer is $9,999. <laughs> because anybody can record a song, only one person can write a song. And that's just a really good example of the different negotiating power that exists between a label and the artist on one side and the publisher and the songwriter on the other side. I can already see more and more layers to unpick for that. Now that you've mentioned that idea of copying songs, it opens a whole other can of worms. But for now, let's wrap it up. It's been a fascinating insight, but also one that I think is clearly going to direct some of our listeners, those with interest in the music industry, to look carefully at your work teasing out this $40 billion copyright world that uh, seems to be just bubbling beneath the surface and no one takes notice of. So thanks very much, Will. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble with myself, Will Page, and the analyst, Richard Kramer, where we're delving deep into the report that's been published on tarsaneconomics.com, which looks at the global value of copyright, which totals up to $39.6 billion, which, if you do the math, means that all the world's musical repertoire is worth almost enough to go and buy Twitter, which is a little bit depressing. But on more technical matters... I want to pick up on the back end of the report where I indeed cite our favourite segment of this podcast, Smoke Signals, and ask Richard a question about that dreaded subject of foreign exchange. Now, Richard, I'm a little bit dyslexic when it comes to foreign exchange. It takes me three or four times to get my head around it. I apologise for that. I'm the dumb kid in the classroom. But it is confusing, and it's doubly confusing when the US dollar goes on the rampage in appreciation against all these other currencies. Now, in the report, what I do is I show... What happens when the US dollar appreciates and you have to measure a global business in constant currency US dollar terms? For example, and we'll try and keep this simple, Japan's music industry grew 9% last year. The American currency, the dollar, has appreciated 18% against the yen this year. If we were to assume that Japan carries on growing its music revenues domestically at 9%, the combination of an 18% appreciation in the dollar against the yen, and 9% domestic growth 
makes the Japanese music industry worth 8% less this year compared to last year. That's where you start banging your head off against the table. So I'm just thinking what I've stumbled across in the report is a microcosm for what's going to affect earnings calls and industry reports all over the place. Some of our listeners are interested in music. A lot of our listeners are interested in financial markets. This has to be a huge topic, which is how do you know what the trend is when, pardon my French, currency movements fuck it all up? Well, uh, that's a great question, Will, and it's something that is on the minds of every management team that has to get on earnings calls, this set of uh, reports, and equally how they're thinking about setting their guidance and expectations for future periods, because it affects a whole range of issues. That's, that's right. That go... Future matters too. So let me break it down into a couple constituent parts, and I'd say there's three big ones. First of all, there is the straight-up translation. That is, whatever period you choose, whether it's the end of the quarter, the end of the year, an average of the year, an average of the quarter, you've got to translate whatever the absolute figure in Japanese yen was back into the standard currency you want to do all of your reporting in. Now, if your company's based in Stockholm, it might be in Swedish kroner. If it's based in London, it might be in pounds. If it's based in the U.S., it might be in U.S. dollars. But you have to decide what your baseline is going to be. And there is that translation impact of saying, I'll take whatever I earned in the foreign currency and translate it back either at the current exchange rate, at an average exchange rate, or then we get on to the second category, which is transaction revenues, which is when I made a sale or a purchase and I brought that money back, what was the rate at that time? Now, for a company that has a monthly subscription and collects in a rate outside their home currency every month, they may transact at slightly different rates 12 times during the year. So they have to decide how they're going to report that. And so... You understand that on the one side, there is the translation impact. There is a theoretical average rate over the course of the year. Then on the other side, there is the hard currency. How much when I sold in this foreign currency did I get back when I transacted back to my own home currency? How much did I have in my pocket? Now, for reports like yours, you're trying to come up with a sensible average translation rate. You're not talking about the actual commercial transactions because you're not party to the millions and millions of copyright deals that go into making that $40 billion number. You have to come up with a translation rate. Now, on top of that, there is a third, even more vexing problem of forecasting. I'll come on to that in a second, but most companies that give you constant currency growth numbers are reflecting some combination of translation and actual transaction revenues to say, this is the amount of money I got back this quarter. On a constant currency basis, had I transacted all that revenue at the same rate as a year ago, this is what my real growth rate would be. In the case of the Japan market, it would have grown 9%. If my base currency is US dollars, when I translate that back, minus 18%, it might turn out to be a minus 9%. So there is those two components there. One is to do with the average rate, and the other is to do with the 
actual transactions as they come back and are translated back into your home currency. So it's almost like three ships potentially passing each other in the night. <laughs> if you ask for a, a straightforward question, you expect a straightforward answer. You have three different ways of carving out that answer. Well, there's really two because one is what is the average distance the ships pass between one another as they go through the English Channel? And the other is how actually close to each other did they get when nice. they hit a certain longitude or latitude? So again, that actual translation is academic. The transaction is real because you could keep all of that Japanese yen income in Japanese yen hoping that the Japanese yen rebounds against the US dollar at some point and you don't right. bring the money back until it does. So that's a treasury function essentially playing not arbitrage, but just optimizing what it does with its cash in different currency pockets. Absolutely. And every treasury function worth its salt is also doing something called hedging. And just to be really simplistic about it, let's say you knew that next year you were going to make a unit of 100 of sales in Japanese yen. You might buy an instrument which protects that hundred that you're going to get a Japanese yen to translate back into an equal hundred of dollars or pounds or something else so that you lock in certainty for a fee that when you translate that revenue back from the transaction that you know what the translation rate is going to be. It's like insurance against the currency being volatile, moving up or down. If the currency moves in your favor, you might have lost out and your hedge was worthless. But if the currency moves against you, the hedge protects against some of the losses you might incur because the bottom dropped out of the currency that you knew you were going to get that hundred of income in. So right. there's another layer on top of that of, of trying to get insurance for what might happen in the currency markets, what sort of volatility you might expect. But indeed, there are those two separate functions. One is sort of an academic exercise, and one has to do with the amount of hard cash you can bring back into your home currency. But if I just wrap this one up, Richard, so if I think about the situation in Japan, which could do everything right, carries on growing 9%, but when we roll it up into a global dollar figure, it's worth 8% less. Hmm. Would it be fair to say the only exchange rate that matters is the one that ensures that you get your boat? The only exchange rate that matters <laughs> is the because one that allows... performance. <laughs> it's not about the bonus. I'll step back from that. The only exchange rate that matters, quite simply is the one that allows you to have a solvent ongoing business. Now, if that company that brought the money back from Japan had 100% of its costs in Japanese yen, guess what? Those costs against the US dollar rate would also have gone down 18%. So they would actually get a benefit because they're bringing their costs and their revenue back in the same currency. There's no impact. But if they had half of their costs in dollars and half in yen, but 100% of their revenue in yen, then they would be hit or vice versa. Got it. Got so it. it's not about the bonus. It's not about boiling it down to some personal factor as if some individual can affect exchange rates. In the end, it's about the solvency of the business. And maybe I want to throw something back to you. When I looked at your report, there is this question about the dominance of the US market. Mm -hmm. in all of these, in music and copyright and so forth. It's like the giant treasure island. Is that just a function of the U.S. having so many more lawyers per capita than every other country <laughs> that they negotiate these deals? Or what's going on that so much of the revenue of this global copyright industry is stemming from the U.S.? 
I think it's true to say there's more students studying law than there's lawyers practicing law in the United States, which makes you wonder about where law is going next. But on this US question, let me start by saying a quick refresher on the notion of globalization. The globalization, when you're taught at university at least, is the idea that poor countries catch up with rich ones. The marginal productivity of capital is so much worth more in a poor country versus a rich one that you get convergence. But we know that globalization is controversial because what we've seen in practice is rich ones pull away from poor ones. Then you think about bringing streaming into the market, which is globalization of music, playlists without borders, everybody's got access to everyone else's music. And you'd think that America's dominance in the business would wane and the growth of other markets would grow. What we've seen since Spotify launched in the US in 2011 is back then America made up 26% of revenue, so just over a quarter. Now it's up to 38%. So America's making up a bigger share of a bigger pie. And your beautiful primer on exchange rates from dyslexic numbskull like myself just makes me wonder, at 38% of the global business, you factor in A, the biggest market, America, continues growing at the biggest rates. It could be worth $10 billion by the end of this year to record labels. And B, you add on top the exchange rate developments where the dollar appreciates, is it's plausible, possible, that America could make up half of the global recorded music industry very soon. And that is not what globalization predicted. To reiterate, poor countries are not catching up with rich ones. The richest one is breaking away from the pack. So what do we make of that when you think, if you're a business planner inside one of those publishers, do you just put all your irons in the fire of the US and just say, that's where you focus all your energies because that's the only market you're really worth getting paid in? Well, no. Local markets are local markets. Harold Wilson, the pound in your pocket is still worth a pound. But from a global perspective, one thing I would add is it is now a lot cheaper for those American music companies and Wall Street companies to buy up global music catalogs. Mm. Yeah. So there's the share of revenues is increasingly American and the share of ownership could quite quickly become increasingly American as well. So let me ask you, before we move to smoke signals, I've got to ask you about this one very strange listed company in the UK, which has spent an awful lot of money buying up publishing rights, but seems to be running into a bit of a pickle in terms of its own business model, which is the hypnosis, if that's the right way to pronounce it, song fund. Now, this company seems to have more debt than equity. It's just got a rescue rights issue from Blackstone, which seems to own about half of it right now. And it has gone on a spending spree like a entire crew of drunken sailors buying up publishing rights for all these interesting artists. Now, what do you make of this business? Will it work in the long term? They're obviously doing it from a perspective of buying it on spec, assuming that the publishing rights would yield revenues over a long period of time. How should our listeners think about looking at a super speculative vehicle? Is that part of bubble trouble or is that one going to be a bubble that indeed keeps inflating. I think what you've seen happen with hypnosis, and I use this word in part one, I'm going to use it again, is a microcosm for what could be going on elsewhere, which is essentially what I call trajectory logic, doing nothing more than adding a ruler, a northeast gradient, and saying, look at the past, and that predicts the future. I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried. I, I just give you a little bit of math around how these deals are done so you can see the scale to which they're now paying for music copyrights. Not that long ago, and I'm talking about five, six, seven years ago, I would try and buy a publishing catalog off you 
by saying, let's take a look at your revenues. Let's say you're making 50 million a year as a publisher owning that catalog. And I'll give you eight to 12 times that 50 million a year. Now, I would ask for eight, you would ask for 12, perhaps we settle at 10. So I'm going to buy the catalog off you for $500 million, a 10 times multiple on the net publisher share. Not what the songwriter got, but what the publisher kept. So if a dollar comes in, publisher holds on to 25 cents and passes the dollar 75 cents through to the songwriter. We're gambling on the multiple of that 25 cents. Now, what Merck has been doing is not paying between 8 and 12. He's paying between 18 and 22 times multiples for catalogs. That is a stratospheric jump in the value of this. Where I get a little bit wary on it is one on the claim, that is, we can monetize these rights better than anyone else. I don't understand why your sync department, which is in charge of placing songs in commercials or movies, is any better than anyone else's sync department. And by the way, if I want to use Carol King's You Need a Friend for the, a car commercial, I'm going to phone the publisher that's got Carol King's You Need a Friend. I'm not looking for competitive bidding on different songs. I know the song that I want. So I don't quite understand how one sync department or one publisher can perform better than another sync department or another publisher. It's the songs that matter. And then secondly, something that you've taught our audience a lot about, which is Interest, rate, interest rates are going back up. The bond market is waking up. And that doesn't matter whether the performance of music stays strong, whether next year I'm talking about a $44 billion business, it makes the yield look less attractive. Or what you've constantly reminded our audience is, we're going back to normal. So I wonder whether this hypnosis scenario, okay, benefit of the doubt, it might play out perfectly and be the land of milk and honey, but I wonder whether it was just of its time, like Robin Hood was of its time, hmm. like Shopify hitting the peaks that it hit was of its time. And it was just that weird pandemic bubble period where things got a little bit out of hand. And now, as you constantly remind our audience, we're getting back to normal and normal rules need to apply. The forces of gravity kick back into play. Hmm. Okay, let's move to Smoke Signals, our favorite part of the show, where you roll on up and do a bit of smoking Tell us, when you look at this 40 billion, 40 billion end market of words streamed up in someone's mind, and you just have to think of all those impoverished poets that never made a dime, wandering around the streets of Paris or London, begging a drink, caging a drink or a smoke from anyone that would listen to their poetry. All of these wealthy songwriters, or at least lawyers and industry executives, what makes you worry about this $40 billion figure, whether we've hit peak publishing, those moments where you smell trouble ahead, and how can our audience spot them as well? Okay, here's my two. Number one of two, I think, is attention economics, and it's what we're doing right now. We're creating a podcast, which once edited by the wonderful Julia Nett, uh, will last about 40 minutes. Now, us wonky economists use this term, at the margin. At the margin, if Richard Kramer chooses to listen to a podcast, instead of a song, he allocates 40 minutes of his time instead of four. The average hours a week spent listening to music is eight hours on Spotify and the rest. The same as it was in March 2009 when Spotify launched in eight, the UK. Uh, just eight hours. Only eight just hours. Just eight hours. Right. So let's just think this through. That could be Richard's commute to work, Richard's commute home, and maybe a few other scraps in between. But if Richard suddenly says, I'm going to listen to a podcast on my way to work and a podcast on the way home, 
that doesn't give much time for music. James Cridland, friend of the show, says that people spend seven hours a week listening to podcasts. Now, the rubber hits the road when I have to remind you and our audience that you still can't use music in podcasts. There's workarounds. But if I want to do a podcast about my favorite band of all time in excess, why can't I take I Need You Tonight and put it inside that podcast? Because of licensing. So again, you can take a horse to water, but on this occasion, is there a way that the music industry could avoid this problem by bringing water to the horse and working out a way in which people like ourselves can put music into podcasts? If we don't, we just have to keep on using library music and production music. That's smoke signal number one. We could lose the battle for attention. Okay. And smoke signal number two, Will? Well, I want to imagine Richard Kramer hanging off the back of a truck on a skateboard, drinking a bottle of soda with their afro hair breezing in the wind and singing Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, recorded and released in 1981. Didn't you see me me on TikTok? (laughs) Well, a guy did that on TikTok and he got 97.8 million views, which is a lot of views. It's not billions of views like YouTube, but it's a lot of views. But here's the crazy bit. 875,000 people have impersonated a guy hanging off the back of a truck, drinking a bottle of soda, singing Dreams on TikTok. That's where it gets strange. And I just keep on thinking about this potential scenario where the success of a Fleetwood Mac song released in 1981 with an audience which largely was born after 2000, sometimes after 2010, means you could sell out Wembley Stadium to a bunch of Gen Z millennials to see Fleetwood Mac live and they've only listened to 34 seconds of their repertoire. Daddy, daddy, what's this? It's called a verse, son. You're going to have two more of them after the guitar chorus. I'm worried about snippets. Like, if the next cohort of people going into university today have never listened to a song from start to finish, I think that's a pretty big smoke signal. But isn't that something, just before we we wrap up, isn't that something that's been happening for ages? I remember watching the biopic of Queen, and there was this great concern about Bohemian Rhapsody because this was something like a six-minute or seven-minute song that was going to get played on radio (laughs) when all the other songs were three or four minutes and songs got longer in the prog rock era. They would go on for days. Those songs would be 11, 12 minutes. Do you remember that line? The the record exec said, nothing lasts seven minutes. And Freddie Mercury said, I feel sorry for your wife. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember that line. And we definitely want to keep that in the edit. But, But, you know, then all of a sudden you have that Spotify effect of people listening to the first 20 seconds of a song and stopping or moving on or clicking onwards. And and we had the length of a song shrinking and shrinking. Is this just the natural progression of of a hypertrophied attention economy where people just, they just can't pay attention for more than 30 seconds. So the first verse is all they get. I'm torn on this one. Firstly, we've been here before. When the mafia ran the jukeboxes in America in 1950s, 1960s, the mafia insisted that no song in that jukebox could last for more than two minutes, 30 seconds. Right. That's why they more wanted more, was, more plays. <laughs> they wanted more money. Right. The best way to extract value from jukebox is to avoid having long songs available to play. So we have didn't been they have, here before. It, didn't they have Inagata De Vida on, those, uh, on that jukebox? <laughs> but on a more real note, you do have to worry about attention spans. The fact that you can just flick left and flick right to skip a song on TikTok I do wonder what that is doing to the creative process. That said, bands are getting signed from TikTok these days. Festivals are booking acts on TikTok these days. So maybe it's not, maybe I'm just being a little old. I do wonder whether the notion of listening to an album as a body of work is getting lost. And if it is lost, I think that, that, that makes us worse off as society. Yeah, and just as, a, as perhaps an optimistic note to end on, and on the flip side of that is that Spotify has dropped the shuffle, play as an automatic 
and they the do most now hated seem feature to, in all time. They do now seem with things like the new Taylor Swift album to be putting out these these blockbuster albums that people do seem to listen to start to finish. And that allows you to, as I've said many times in this podcast, Richard, the internet can scale many things, but it can't scale intimacy. And for an artist to have an intimate relationship with their fans, that track order, that body of work, that stuff really matters. Absolutely. With that, we will leave our audience to hop off and listen to their favorite artist and to end their latest album, start to finish and understand the unfolding mystery of beautiful art. I want to thank Will Page for an enlightening description of what's really going on behind the $40 billion copyright industry. And we'll be back next week with some more special guests. Thanks very much. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.